Okay, good evening, everyone. A little late, but it's better late than never. Let's get started over here. Today we're going to learn, we Baruch Hashem finished the other Maimer. It was a marathon, the beer on Chukas. And now we're going to learn another beer, another explanation um, on a discourse in Parshas Matos, page 164 in Lakuti Torah. Pei Beis Ahmed Gimel. Well, short of this one, it's only, you know, four columns. Now, um, my confession is that I'm going to learn this with you for the first time, meaning I, gl- I did glance, I'm saying glance means I read the first two Se'ifim, I think it was l- maybe Friday morning last week, and then during the week I was planning to learn it well, and for whatever reason I didn't. And my thought was that I shouldn't teach tonight, I should prepare tonight and teach tomorrow morning. But I don't like to cancel the time that we learn Thursday night, so I'm not going to finish the discourse, because I hope by starting it tonight and reading it and learning it together, and then tomorrow I'll have a little more time to, to get into the, uh, to do a little better prep, so I'll be able to teach you the second half at least after some preparation, and I think that's usually much better than without preparation. Okay, now the Armai Morim discourses that without preparation you can't even begin to attempt to, to, to teach it. And then the Armai Morim, which read a little smoother and easier, and Baruch Hashem, I think this is of the kind that we could get through to some degree just by reading it together. And again, with Hashem's hope, oop, forgetting that I'm doing better with the other glasses, so give me one minute. We're going to make the change. And this will be easier for the read. Okay, here we go. Okay, so this week we have the, the commandment of keeping a vow and also about annulling vows, that when a, especially regarding women that make vows, their husband, their father, their, uh, the, the, is able to annul the vow. And by all people, the rabbi, the scholar, is able to undo a vow. Well, that's a whole process, but that's the way it is. So we need to understand this whole, generally a vow, a person who took a vow was to help them refrain, self-control. That was really the idea of a vow. People feel that they're getting a little bit uh, too, um, you know, experiencing addictions. You know, today we would be able to see it. A person is addicted to alcohol. A person is addicted to drugs. A person is a, has any kind of an addiction, and they can't seem not to be able to control themselves. And that's having a very detrimental effect. An eating disorder or something like that. It's having a a detrimental effect on them. And especially with this is even physically, especially mentally, emotionally, and more than anything spiritually person is not free to be able to serve God because you're too distracted and because they're getting very coarsened by various different behaviors which are becoming addictive. So in order to increase self-control, you take a vow and you say, I'm going to withdraw from so-and-so completely and I'm not going to do this. So it helps you disengage, disinvolve. Um, And um, people would take vows and help them. Now sometimes people did it for addictions and sometimes did it, they weren't addicted, they just felt that too much material pleasure is having a negative impact on them in order to refine themselves and elevate themselves by they would withdraw from worldly pleasures, whether it's eating meat, whether it's drinking wine or things like that. Um, 
And sometimes people would take it to an extreme, that they would really, really refrain from many things through vows and allow themselves only tiny little bit of pleasure from the world, engagement of the world. In general, the Torah is not too happy with that, even though the Torah does allow for that, but it's not, that's not the way, it's not the Torah way. The Torah way is to live your life in the physical and yet live a purposeful, meaningful life and a God-conscious life while you're taking care of your body, not neglecting the body. And as we're going to learn in this discourse, this discourse discusses the relationship of the human and the uh, world, the other sources that generally support a human, primarily food, um, which comes from the plant, it comes from the animal, and which we discussed in last time, or also we're learning about the human, plant, animal, and inanimate. And we learned how the inanimate and the plant how the, how the animal and the, in, and the plant and even and the inanimate in its source is higher than the person, even though in manifestation the human is higher. So the idea of this mimer is the interplay between human and the physical aspects of this world and why I think it's going to get to, if I remember, again, this is a, a, an explanation on a discourse that we learned many years ago, so I don't remember fully the discourse, uh, but um, again, as, first of all, I want to explain what does it mean in explanation. I, t I, d I mentioned this many t earlier for those that are new to this, is that um, I, the way I experience is that the when the Alter Rebbe says a mimer, it would be, for example, like you know, taking a drive in a, in a, in a, a new, brand new, um, I don't know, uh, an amazing car, taking a drive in a Lamborghini, taking a drive in a Chvez. Whatever, whatever. I'm I'm not into into cars, but whatever is the newest uh, luxury car, um, and and that's the discourse. It's it's a beautiful drive. It's an amazing experience. It elevates you. It takes you to places of deep spiritual connections. And then after the discourse is over, the Alter Rebbe opens up the front hood of the car, and he explains the motor and he explains the components that make up the uniqueness of this car. And that's what I always see is the explanation of the discourse. The discourse is always Hasidic, powerful, energetic insights. Godly, godly revelations. Now the explanations are also godly revelations, but it's basically the Kabbalistic wiring of the original discourse. So therefore it's really problematic to learn an explanation without learning what the explanation is on. That's why I feel extra inadequate to teach tonight, but the alternative is not, is not to learn and to have an alternative of not learning is always better to learn. So hopefully we're going to learn, we're going to understand what he's saying, and then we're going to go back to the main discourse. Hopefully after I prepare, I look through it, and then I can come back and finish the discourse. That's the idea. So let's go. So we need to understand Indian. So in the main discourse, if, and I remember this from actually from when I taught it last time, and I don't remember how many years ago I taught this one. But in the main discourse, it discusses the, again, as we mentioned earlier, the, the human being being above all of creation and the human being being lower than all of creation. So we're supposed to rectify the world, but once we rectify the world, the world elevates us. So it's a multi-directional, it's, uh, it's a symbiotic, I think the word would be, relationship. Uh, we contribute to the world and the world contributes to us. We elevate the food we rectify the food, which is the animal, the plant, and thereby also the inanimate, but then once we elevate it, it reveals its spiritual source to us and benefits our soul tremendously. And that concept's an amazing concept because that gives us a very deep respect and even an awe 
to the food that we eat. That having a regular meal is not just a animalistic or even just a human type of an experience where you're just doing it as one of the survival elements that we do in life, but that it has a godly content. We're redeeming sparks related to what we just spoke on Monday night. We spoke about the, four, the 288 sparks that need to be redeemed. Even though there's 288 in general, but these 288 turns into billions and trillions of little tiny fragments of sparks that are in everything. And it cannot express its, itself until we engage it and elevate it through our saying of a blessing, rather, let's say, on a, on a cup of water and the like. That helps it. But once it is elevated, it elevates us. And that's why we see it even physically that we survive from the food we eat. And that's because the godliness that's in the food emanates and stems from a higher place even than the godliness of our soul. So by elevating the, so the food, the spark, and reconnecting it to its spiritual source, we download the energy from that very, very high spiritual source into our soul, and that in turn elevates us. Now all of this, that the human is higher than the rest of the world, because he's the only one that can bring this redemption to the rest of creation. And God tells that to Adam. He says, I am making you the, 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 the Lord, so to speak, the, the, the master over the world. So he tells him, you're going you're gonna to rule over the fish of the sea, the animals. So he puts him in charge. He makes him the master over everything. Okay, he didn't permit you, the human to eat flesh. But to Noah, many years later, about a thousand years later, God permitted, 1,500 years later, God permitted to Noah to, um, to eat animal flesh, which is all part of this rectification. Um, so this idea is stated in the Pasuk, a verse in Tehillim. In Psalms it says, It's a Pasuk in the end of Tehillim. I don't remember exactly which chapter, but it's, I think, within the last 10 chapters of Tehillim. Where King David says, the Ochar means ladder, Vikedem, and before, Tsartani. You formed me before and later. What does that mean? As a human, I'm created before creation, or the beginning of creation, at the very beginning. And as a human, I'm created last in creation. So we're both. We're first and last. How can we be both? So in the literal sense, we were created last. Because the human being was actually created after God finished creating all of creation, God created the human. So the human was created last. Um, on Friday, he created the animals Friday morning. The human, or at night, Thursday night, uh, the humans were created only Friday, Friday day. But later... And the, and the birds and the fish were created on Thursday, on the fifth day of the creation. And the insects and the plants were created all the way on Tuesday, on the third day of creation. And water was created already even before that, even on Sunday, uh, Monday, where we talk about the upper waters, the lower waters. So all these things were created before the human. Human is last. So what do we mean he's also first? On the simple level, he's the primary being. He's the intention. When God intended, created everything, the intention was for the human. And actually, when it says God created human, the human last, there's two explanations in the sages why God created the human last. One explanation is to, 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 to indicate the 
the inferiority of the human, and the other explanation is to experience, to to is based on the superiority of the human. There's one explanation is that God wanted everything in the world, since the human is the main primary being and he's God's like guest, God makes a feast. When you make a feast and your guests show up, you want to have everything already put on the table. The forks, the knives, the plates, even the napkins, all the decor, everything is ready. You might not put the food out yet because you want it to be totally fresh, but everything is prepared to go out. To invite guests and the table isn't set yet. Nothing is this. It's not nice. It's not... Uh, it doesn't show respect, if you can say to the guests. So you want to show respect. You want to honor them. So everything I did already, it's all done. So God didn't want a human being to come in the world. And God says, and when human says, what's with lunch? And God says, wait, we'll take a couple of days until we can get lunch ready. Hashem wanted everything ready. So in that sense, that indicates the human being being last is actually indicating respect and honor of how great the human is. There's another explanation is if a person becomes arrogant, God says to the human being that even a gnat, even a mosquito, even a roach was created before you. Who do you think you are? You're behind everything. You're lower than everything. So we see this dichotomy in the human. Before, above everything, and lower than everything. So he's going to, Faltarev is going to explain it now in the mystical. What does it mean in the spiritual dynamics of things? He neilavant understanding in ochar vikedem. Ochar means last, vikedem means and first. Tsartani, you have formed me. Ochar lamai sebereshes. The human being was created, as the sages explained, the human being was created the last in creation. So the Alter Rebbe begins and explains, in ten utterances, the world was created. Now the ten utterances stem from the ten spheros of Tikkun. Right? What are the ten? God created the world ten utterances, right? As we know, the sages say in the fifth chapter of, of Ethics of the Fathers, in the ten utterances God created the world. Bereshus is the first. Sages say, even though Bereshus is not Vayomer, it's still considered an utterance. And then there's Hashem said, let there be light. And Hashem said, let there be a firmament. And he said, let the, let the earth give forth, let the, the water split. Go through all the ten utterances in, in, the, in, in the first chapter of the Torah, the story of creation. So these ten utterances originate in something, in another, in another they, they emanate from another element of ten. Why ten utterances? Because God, on a deeper level, God manifests himself with ten characteristics, if you can say. God projects of himself ten characteristics, which these ten characteristics make up a certain divine, godly personality through which he interacts and engages with the world. And since it's ten, ten personality traits, ten powers, um, therefore each one of these utterances stem from another one of these ten powers. Now these ten powers, these ten uh, spherot, if you can call them, are called the ten spherot of tikkun, of the rectified. Now the moment you say something is rectified means that there had to be a mess first. You can only rectify something that is first a mess. So the Kabbalists say, the reason why we refer to the ten attributes or these ten spherot, these ten illuminations of rectification, is that originally there were messed up attributes. What does that mean? So it's, it's related to the concept of tohu and tikkun. That there's a primordial existence which is a mess, which is a problem, which is chaos. 
and it didn't work out. Now, why didn't it work out? Because it was, it, it didn't work out. It was a mess. But why? God, uh, God didn't fail. It was intentionally. God created intentionally a messed up situation. What was the messed up situation? It's purely holy. It's intense holiness. The problem in that world was is it's too godly. It's too intense. Too much light. Too much energy. And that's why there was an explosion. So there was also a system of ten attributes. But those ten attributes were too intense. And therefore, number one, they clashed with each other. The attributes didn't leave room. Each one didn't leave room for the other one. There was no cohesiveness. There was no interaction. There was no... Um, synthesis between these attributes and number two the vessels the containers couldn't contain the energy either way these attributes went and collapsed and then God rectified that by re 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 emanating and this time it was a much softer emanation a much lesser projection a more controlled revelation and that controlled revelation results in ten spheres of tikkun were two things. The, 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 each attribute, each personality trait is not, that in, is not so extreme and therefore it can tolerate other traits and other ideas. It's not exclusive, mutually exclusive. They get along and they integrate one with each other. And secondly, it also is that containers are able to receive the light. The, the light, the energy doesn't overwhelm the containers. That's the idea of the ten attributes of Tikkun. So he says when God created the world, he created the world with ten, with the ten utterances, which these ten utterances are derived from the ten attributes of Tikkun. How do you know it's from Tikkun? Because you have a sustained world. Uh, from the ten attributes of Toh, there wouldn't be sustained world. Actually, God created initially, attempted to create the world from these ten intense attributes of Toh, and they were destroyed. He created them and destroyed them. That's what it says in the Midrash. There was a totally God created this world that lasted. There were many attempts that failed. Not that it failed on God, intentionally failed. We'll soon see that we needed those broken, destroyed worlds for a reason. But then we, God emanated through the ten attributes of Tikkun, and that's why we have a world that is sustained. So what is that? Yehi or Chachma, which begins the first of those ten utterances which stem from the ten worlds of Tikkun, is let there be light, which is Chachma. I am Beparadei Shar Beis, Perikei, Ubezayir Parshas Vayikra, Daf Yod Aleph, Saif Amad Beis, Vemigdash Melech Shalom, Epishas Bereishas, Daf Yod Vav Amad Beis, Vedaf Chav Beis, Aleph and Beis, look in all those sources in which you're going to see this idea. So now, being that the worlds were created through energy that was funneled through these ten attributes, and these ten attributes of Atzilus of Tikkun are what are divine, which means they're completely and perfectly attached to God. They're just an extension, so to speak, a manifestation, an expression of Him. So the question is, So how does this translate? How does this bring about? How does it uh, result that from these ten attributes, which energy is flowing through them, how does it result in Bria Yetzir in a state of existence, which are the three lower worlds, which is called Bria, the world of creation, Yitzira, the world of formation, and the world of completion, the world, the physical, material world. What's the problem? Shem Bali, Shem, Shehem Bali Gvul, which are limited. 
God is infinite. So how does suddenly infinity, if the energy is flowing through an infinite channel, and the channel itself is infinite and one with the, with the truly in, infinite being, and the channels themselves are infinite, that means the energy flow that is flowing through them is also infinite. So how does suddenly finite entities, how does it result in a finite world? That's the question. And if it's finite, that's not divine anymore. Divine is infinite. So how does the, where does it break away? That's his question. And how does it come to a state where it breaks away from the infinite and suddenly we have finite? And the deeper question is, how does it become from the divine creation? And that's the second thing. He says, number one, they're limited. And, and the, the attributes that are the, mediate, the, 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 the channels of these energy flow is infinite. So an infinite, you know, how, how, does it, how does it become finite? And secondly, how does it become the yesh vidavar? How do the resultant um, beings that, that, that come out of it, that emerge from it, from this energy, all that was put into them is this energy. And this energy is what? Is, is infinite and one with God. How does it break away, so to speak, and start to feel itself as something other than the divine? As a creation. That's what a creation is. It's something. There is God and there is somethingness. Something. And something that is apart from God. So if the, if the energy is God and the channels and the containers and the vessels are also God and they're all infinite. So all you have over here is a, a, a projection and a flow of infinity. So where does suddenly non-godliness come into this? How does it result in that? That's his question. And now he explains, um, What is he adding over here? The the mean, he's extending the question that not only how does it result, because maybe you can say, because he's infinite, he's omnipotent. An infinite being can, has no, no limitations, no boundaries. So he can will and bring about finite creatures. If the energy, what's an energy? It's a force. It's a force that can make something happen. So the happenings that he makes happen are finite because that's what he wants. So in that sense, there wouldn't be such a big question. quite on the contrary because he's infinite and because the energy is divine and because the channel is divine and because it's all part of him and he can do whatever he wants so he can produce limited finite beings and he can give them identity and beingness as if there's something other than him and separated from them okay that would be so much the question the question is that we know that the energy of the divine doesn't only create but it doesn't create from a distance it itself encloses itself and if it encloses itself, means it becomes like a soul to the creation. The energy invests itself within the creation. So how can a finite being be invested with infinite energy inside of it? That's the question over here. How can a finite being contain within itself an energy that is essentially an infinite? See, if the energy would remain kind of outside and it would create at a distance, no. It would work. But we know. So how do we know it's not that way? Because we know according to Torah that it's not that way. 
the idea of the ten utterances, that the amaris and so on and so forth, is that it's like it, it, God is investing himself into the creation. He's enclosed in the creation. So if he's enclosed in the creation, he's not creating it from a distance. He's creating it by being invested in it. Also, that already brings you back to both questions. If that's the case, if the energy bringing about something is infinite, then and it's inside of it, and it's it's it's. So then, how does the resultant being be so stiff, and and rigid and small if its energy is so expansive and infinite? That's the question. And also, how does it then feel and is feels apart if its whole energy that's within it and bringing it into existence every second is continuation of the divine? Where does it get it, the idea that it is something other than God? How does that happen? Where in the world is it getting this otherness if its entire energy force that's in it, that's, it's empowering it and flowing and, it's, and, and producing it from within is, is pure, it's pure an expression of God. So how does, it, how does, the, how does the disc, how does the ungodliness begin? That's the question. It's one of the, um, what's it called again, um, apostates, I think, brings, who argued that from the lower half is, is, is uh, godly and the lower half is, is some kind of a demon or meaning... He, he was questioning this, this idea of a higher state of existence and a lower state of existence. And almost like, sort of, where does the split happen? Which he was, I guess, ex- trying to express an idea of duality. But we, were, we believe in unity. So at which point, what's, what's, what does this mean? Ah, so that's what he says. Oh, so there's a secret. Had the ten attributes of Tikkun, which the Attributes of Tikkun are a plugged in completely to God and therefore an extension of the infinite. Had they engaged, created the world just from within the, what them themselves, just if without mixing anything else into it, yes, and then we would never result in a creation. Every state of existence that would emerge would be a continuation of an expression of the divine. Could become a lesser expression, a lesser energy, but it would still always be a continuation of the divine. Divine consciousness would never become something. If it would just be the ten attributes of tikkun, which means a connected state would continue continuously, then there would always be connection. And therefore, they would always be infinite. There wouldn't be a breakaway. And as a result of that, there would only be... Um, entities that are divine, meaning never become separate. Ah, but he says it's not the case. When God created through the ten attributes of Tikkun, why did he first, going back to the question, was it an accident that he first attempted these intense revelations and it didn't work out? Not an act, it was a, it was a purposeful destruction. Why? Because God wanted what we, this, this, uh, these destroyed these the 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 uh, debris of those destroyed worlds and of those destroyed energies or those sparks from those energies to be to be part of the creation. So therefore, it's not a pure 
emanation of divine life force and energy that flows and becomes the universe. There is an interaction. Somehow this energy flow mixes with these pieces of a primordial, um, not a primordial existence, of an ancient existence that exists before, before the creation. And by, by, by engaging and involving and, 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 and uh, joining in these, these uh, entities of Toh, like we're going to see, is what enables the creation to break away from the divine and become beings, so to speak, disconnected, separated. And so, so, the, so the, the whole uh, idea of worlds that are, number one, finite, and number two, experience themselves as something other than God, not a continuation. There's no just one continuous flow of divine consciousness, but there is a separation. This is attributed to those shattered worlds because after they're shattered, their energies that are, um, that are in a state, so to speak, of disconnect. So they can, if you mix them into something, they can add this notion of disconnectness. And he's going to explain it as we learn. That this came about through the shattered vessels of the world of Tov. Because even though they were the facilitators, these containers, these vessels, because um, let me add one more very important word, idea, and I mentioned it briefly before, but I didn't explain. The, 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 the emanations of, of God, since God is simple with utter simplicity, so a revelation of himself, a energy flow of himself, an expression of himself, would be exactly like the source. Just like he is defin, defin, definitionless and completely a, pure from any kind of description and any kind of, of definition, any kind of uh, uh, trait or, 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 or design that can def define him. Um, Therefore, the, his, his flow, his projection, his, his, his energy that comes forth from him, his light that comes from him, the light is always a reflection of the source of the light. So if the source is pure, then his energy is also pure. So how do you get a multifaceted, multi-detailed, multi-functional you know, uh, uh, um, creation, an existence of such, such, such different... Entities. How do you get a world of multiplicity? How do you get a world of, if it's all one singular, boundless, undefinable energy? So that's the reason why God kind of defines or sets boundaries on his energy. And once he feeds his pure energy through certain, what we call vessels and containers, the containers kind of give some character and definition to the otherwise uncharacteristics life force. And what it does is that it makes that even though the energy in its, in, its, in its essence for itself is really infinite, pure, and undefined, its impact is in a specific, def definitive way. In other words, like in the simple the example that is usually given in Kabbalah is like light shining through a traffic light. So you have a light, and the light is red, and the light is yellow, and the light is green. 
inherently the light is all the same light, but the glass is tinted with different tint. And therefore the light that's coming through the, 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 the thing appears to be a, a, a green color. It appears to be a red color and a yellow color. It's effect to, to the to outside, to those that are looking at it, is a different color. So the same is also God feeds his life through life forces through the attributes, and the attributes give character, and they're called containers and vessels. So in the world of Tikkun, these containers, as I mentioned earlier, were able to contain the light. But in the world of Tohu, the energy was too intense for these vessels, and the vessels broke. So what does it mean? Obviously, these are not physical. So he's going to give a little more of a refined understanding of what does it mean that these vessels broke? What does, what does it mean that they broke? So, ah, and these broken shards, these broken vessels, they, they were once, whatever they are, were once facilitators. They, 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 they connected, they were part, they were, exp they were unified with, with the closest, most revealed, most intense expression of the infinite. So even after they break, they have kind of contained within them a spark, a memory, so to speak, of this very, very, very intense energy. And that's the idea of all the sparks of holiness that are scattered everywhere. Sparks from a very, very lofty place. So now, and he says that these shattered pieces somehow blended into the 10 newer attributes which never shattered and never broke. And the, and the creation comes about through an integration of the 10 attributes of Tikkun, which are still connected to God, and that's why it can serve as a creative power, and it's God creating, nothing other than Him. But utilizing this, these shards, which imbue the creation with the... the the, what is needed in, in order to make the creation have a certain breakaway from its source. Without these shards, there would never be a breakaway. They kind of get in, in the way and create and bring about a, a, what we might call a broken consciousness, which is what's necessary in order for there, for there to be free choice. The way creation came about was that God initially collapsed the, the vessels of Toh. Shekesh and when they broke, now, when these vessels broke, the energy force, the infinite energy force, retracted. Because that's the rule. When there's no vessel, the, the energy retracts. So the energy went back to its source, reabsorbed in God's very self. But these containers, they, because they broke, and now they don't have the light, but they have a little residue of the light because they touched it once. The Noflu and these broken shards, so to speak, they fell down below. Now, where is the below? What's higher? What's below? Obviously, all this is taking place simultaneously, these broken worlds and then the, the emanation of the new light and the new vessels. And somehow, it kind of creates this perfect storm, this perfect unification. And, but exactly the right ingredients that it would take to create the universe as it is. And how, where did it fall? It fell binoga in the realm of noga, which means in a mixed, it fell into a state of existence where, it's, where it loses focus, it loses its purpose. 
it's mixed up. And because it's mixed up, it's what Noga is. Noga is a klipa, which we learned a lot about in the last class, in Pasha's Chukas, which is a mixture of good and bad. And uh, that's what we got over here. Because of these shards, and they're in a disconnected state, so you have these floating force of powers, it's energy, but it's misguided because it's lacking in its, in its direct connection to its source. We'll understand it better soon. And that's what enables the, the consciousness of being something. Being something. Because when you're connected to God, you know the truth that He is and there's none but Him. He is power. And if He is power, He's, he's the energy of everything. But that's if there is a continuum, if there is a breakaway, which how is there a breakaway? Because of the shattered vessels. They created a disconnect and a breakaway. And in this breakaway, there can be this, this notion of existence that's not a continuation of God, even though it's false, but at least it creates this imaginary experience of being something. Now when the energy of tikkun mixes, so to speak, with this, with this thing, it, it, the result is a mixture. Divine energy is there to create something from nothing. But instead of the thing that comes out being completely just a further expression of God being divine, it comes up with the idea that it is something. It feels somethingness. Because in mixed in it is this little bit of yeast. It's like if you put a little yeast into flour, it suddenly makes the thing flow. We will call these shattered vessels, these sparks, these shattered broken, we'll call it the little bit of yeast that inflates the creation that comes out of it into feeling as if it's something. So now he's going to give a deeper understanding of what means the shattered vessels. Now we have to think a little bit more refined. When we say broken vessels, what are these containers? Glass? What is it, what is it made out of? Clay, earthenware, what exactly is this vessel? China, what, what, what is the vessel made out of that's breaking? So obviously we're not dealing with physical containers. So the idea of vessels and containers is the concept of letters, words. Because words, just like in the human experience, the, the world, the realm of words, is that words are vessels and containers which you take ideas and you put it into words. Any book that's written, what is it? It's the author's idea. Whatever the idea is, all kinds of ideas. New books are printed every day. All kinds of ideas in all aspects of thing. But how do these ideas take on a form and, a, and, a, and that someone could, could tangibly read it and connect to it? You can't just project an idea in your head. To put it into words, yeah, that can speak to you. But even when I'm speaking, I'm, put, I'm putting the idea into words. And the words, now even though we all use basically the same sounds, A, B, C, D, it's one A, B, C, D in, in, in the English language, but how many different books are there and different concepts and extreme opposite ideas that are so, and yet it's the same A, B, C. Because they're, they're just vessels, they're containers, and what you put into them could be different. And then you organize, obviously, the words and the letters in a way that they convey and bring out this idea. So the same is also when God creates the world, he uses letters, words to convey his ideas, which these ideas are the, is the character of the universe. Now, um, so that's the idea of, 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 of these letters. That's the vessels. Now when we say the vessels broke, 
What does that mean? Vessels breaking means the idea of the scattering of the letters. So if any, I, any word that I say is made up of a few letters. Let's say the word letters. When you hear the word letters, you understand what's letters. L-E-T-T-E-R-S. And that means letters. <laughs> that means A, B, C, D. These are the letters. Now, we play Scrabble. So you take the letters and you have each one, an L and one, E, uh, you know, each one. And then you take the, these, these, these letters and you throw them. Imagine like these, I don't know, like, I think in the game of Scrabble, I didn't play these games in a long time. Sometimes my family plays and I watch. Is it Scrabble they play? I'm not sure. So they have these little blocks, each one a different letter, and you create different combinations of words. If you take the letter, if they take these very letters and you throw them like this, then you lost the idea. Because an L, E, T, T, E, R, S, if it's not organized in that letter, if you put the E at the beginning and the R and the whatever, you messed it up, you lost the whole content. So even though you have now letters, but you don't have any content anymore, because the light, what's the light? The idea that's in the word letters is the concept of a letter. That's the idea, that's a concept, that's an idea, letters. Every language we understand has letters. So letters mean something, but that's only if the, word, if the, if the letters are composed in a, in a specific order. If these letters and words get scattered, and thrown around all over the place. The idea goes away. And what are you left with? You're left with an L, you're left with an E, you're left with a T. Now, if you're smart, you can put it back together again. If you have a, a, a good sense of language and, and of words and so on, some people are much better than it than others. And if not, you're just stuck with letters, which is meaningless. Meaningless L or meaningless E. Now, here's another idea. When letters are put together in a organized fashion, the letters are not seen. You don't see the letters because you see the concept. You're reading a book and you see words, you haven't read it too well. If when you're reading the book you don't see words, there's like a powerful idea that's coming through and the, the words are all lost to the idea. You're not even seeing them. Sometimes you're a little conscious of the author being a prolific writer and describing something, but even then, if, you, if you're too much focused on the words, you're not getting the content. Reading comprehension. Reading comprehension is that you can see the idea and not get caught in the letters. My children, when they're learning how to read, I have a lot of times a hard time. They're not noticing the concept. They're just uh, you know, putting together the words. And then the reading comprehension is to see how you can deduce and extract the idea. When you extract the idea, you don't see the letters. But when you take the word and you scatter it, and the concept and the energy goes away, then the material of the letters becomes far more noticed and substantial. Because it's not canceled to something else, it has a business of its own, it has an entity of its own. When it's just a courier of an idea, when it's just a transmitter of an idea, then it's a utility for something else, it doesn't draw attention to itself. So, when God initially emanated letters, when the letters were containing an idea, then the letters were completely nullified to the idea and surrendered to the idea and one with the idea. So you didn't see the letters, you saw just the idea. 
But for whatever reason, as we said earlier, the idea was too intense for the letters, so the letters broke up and the idea left and the letters were scattered. Once the idea, so what do you have now? You have something that is lacking in cancellation. It's not, it's not joined with its source. It starts to be something. Just like the letter, when it's not serving something else, it is something. I'll, I'll give, you can use a physical example. A beautiful vase is not something. It's a, a when you see a vase and it's holding beautiful, a, a, a magnificent, um, what's it called again, bouquet of flowers. It's it the, the vase is just part of the flowers. It's it's lost in the flowers. It it is the flowers. When you take the flowers out of the vase, the vase becomes more of a substance. But even then, you don't see the clay, you don't see the glass, you see what? You see a flower vase. When you take, if, you know, God forbid, you take the, the thing and it falls to the floor and it cracks. Oh boy, there's a whole bunch of glass. And what do you see then? Glass. Then the material of what it's made out of stands out for itself, other than the fact that it's dangerous. But it itself has now a substance. It, it draws attention to the fact that it's glass. Before you didn't notice glass, you noticed a vase. I mean, if you're if you're into manufacturing it, you're going to look at what it's made out of, and so on and so forth. But 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 the idea is something. The somethingness of something only 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 um, only becomes you know of of concern of substance. When, it's, when it ceases to be a utility for something else. So now let's read inside. So this is the same thing that happens. When you have words that contain ideas, that are not broken, then the idea comes through. And in our case, the idea is, is, is godliness. God comes through. The world is an idea of God. It's just, all it is is just the godliness all every human being every stone every bird every tree every entity all it is is a story about god so it's all divine it's all him there's no separateness there's no beingness there's no detachment there's no sense of i am everything is part of the story everything is part of the concept the magnificent concept but once you have shattered vessels you end up with substances that have nothing other than themselves because they're not conveying something higher than themselves. All they are themselves. So they start becoming chunky and thick and you end up with creatures and beings who feel themselves not as part of something bigger, but they are who they are. And that's the, that's the state of the material world, the way God created, he intentionally wanted it this way so that we can... Re, to put the puzzle again so that we can get the concept back and suddenly all of creation is a magnificent revelation of God, which we only see after we put the letters back again and get the concept shining again, which we do that through Torah and mitzvahs, fixing the world. We re-scrabble the letters and put them back, organizing them the way God wants them. Ki'enhei for behold, the shattering of the letters. Because letters are containers. By way of analogy below. When the letters are combined, which are two or three letters together, then they comprise a word. 
Shuhukeli, which this word now is a vessel and a container, ubeis kibul, it is a facilitator, le'ezas kola, to some kind of an idea. Now an idea can come in. But when the letters get separated one from each other, they scatter, as we said before. Then in each letter on its own, so there is no content, there's no idea, there's no intelligence in it. From what the originally was there. Which was enclosed in this word. And this is the concept, that the light went away from the vessel. So now we understand that's concept number one. That's called Shvira Sakelim. Shvira Sakelim means scattering of the letters. So there's no more, they're not, they're not conveying something bigger than them. They lose that. Oh, when you lose that, so who are you? Oh, I am myself. All I am is a letter. I'm, I'm a vessel. Nevertheless, Now here's the thing. He says, when you scatter letters, a little tiny bit of the, of the idea is still in the letter. Why? Because potentially, if you, if you pair it back up with other, with other letters, you're going to get back, each letter is going to contribute something. So there is a little spark still there. Since they were once attached, and they were once unified and organized in a certain way, and they had a, 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 a concept. It's like, you know, people that don't want documents to be, you know, they don't want the documents, they don't want the, for whatever reason, anybody to see their documents, they shred it. And when you shred it, what are you doing? You're, you're, you're tearing it up. When you're tearing it up, what do you get? You, just, you can't, you, you know nothing that was, sta was stated over there. It's all torn up. Oh, but when you go, and experts come, and the FBI come, and they want to read something. They find a shredded document. They start putting it, even if they don't find all the pieces, they put it together, and then they can sort of start piecing together by having some incredible analysts and can, can see and put them, see what, where and when. And even if they're still missing a bunch of, of a missing, they can kind of get the, the message that was there with all that missing. So what do you see? That there's still a little spark in each one of them because it was once there. Now you're re-emerging by putting small pieces together. You're trying to get the picture back. So you see that each, each letter contains a little bit of it. But again, when it's only that little drop on its own, it doesn't mean that much. It's only a tiny little spark. A little mark. But the essence of the light went away from the vessel. So now, now we go to step two. Once we understand the concept of how, what, what, what does it mean to shatter vessels? It means in spirituality, it means to take words and to break them up so the energy goes away and that the light that's within them goes away. Now he's going to bring the second idea that the condition of the vessel changes. When the vessel was carrying light, the vessels are unnoticed. When the vessels don't carry night, then they become, if you're reading a book and you're reading it in, in a different language, I don't speak Chinese or whatever language you're reading, which is a language that you don't know, and you're reading that words in that, so then oh, you, see the, you see the letters, you see the words, you see the symbols, you're paying attention, because there's no content over there to swallow the symbols. You're reading a language that you know, as we said earlier, you don't, you're not seeing the words, you're, you're, obviously you're reading the words, but that's not, 
the words are not, are not what's occupying you. What's occupying is the, the powerful story that's coming through. So he's going to give an example even from the physical. He's going to give an example about the vase. In physical um, containers, you have a, a wine bottle. So the, the vessel that's holding the wine is completely surrendered and secondary to the wine. That's in it. And therefore, even halachically, it's that way. I spoke about this to, to a few weeks ago in a Parsha class, in Parsha Shlach, I think. That's why it says in Mishnah. Gave Mamash this example. If you take out food that's less than a shear, in a vessel, putter, one is not liable, or for Shabbos, even on the container. Interesting Allah. The law is that in one of the things you're not allowed to do on Shabbos is you're not allowed to carry from one domain to another domain or you're not allowed to carry four cubits in the public domain. But there is a minimal amount for carrying. There's a shear. And if you carry less than that, you're not obligated. So for food, there is certain shearing that has to be that, let's say, it's, an, it's, it's food that can, let's say, an olive, size of an olive, is a size that's considered a decent amount of food that should be considered eating. Anything less than that is not. So if you carry it on Shabbos, you're not liable. Not that you're allowed to, but you're not liable. Now what happens is I gave the example, then you have a platter of sushi. And there's a, there's a, there's a half a piece of sushi left. Let's say it's less than an olive amount. And you have a huge tray. And you're carrying the tray with this tiny little bit of sushi that's left in it. So the law is that you're not you're exempt. Even though the tray is a big tray, you carry the tray. But since you're carrying the tray, and the tray is here right now to support the sushi platter, the sushi that's in it, and this, this little piece of food that's in it is, on it you're not, you're not obligated, you're not uh, liable, because it's less than the amount. So even though the vessel is the amount, since the vessel is considered as if it doesn't exist, the vessel is the sushi. That's what happened. The, the tray is the sushi. The platter is the food that's in the platter. The platter is canceled to it because it doesn't draw attention to itself. It's not about it. It's about what it's serving. So the same is when we talk about these containers, these vessels. When they are serving an energy, when they're serving an idea, when they're serving a... So then they are part of the idea. They don't exist in a distinct manner for themselves. So we took a take a look, think about this powerful idea. If all of creation and everything in this world is a powerful godly idea, if we tune into the godliness and in the idea, then we are the idea. You think about, and that means we are assimilated in the idea. And then we are as true as the idea. And if the idea is the godly and permanent and real, so we're also permanent. And if we really, really live in that state, there's no death. And why? Because then you don't stand out as something. Then you are him, and he is forever. So you are forever. Once creation, however, had the idea that we, that we are something, and that started with Eve's listening to the snake and stepping out of the divine idea and started their, you know, our own, our own, uh, our own uh, agenda, our own plan, our own, uh, as we interpret ourselves, not as God interprets us, and therefore we step out of the divine idea, and then we become something. 
Now, something doesn't last too long. <laughs> That's the idea. Ah, so again, in Shabbos, you put it off a lakeli. Shakeli tfeilaloi. The keli is tuffle and secondary to it. Ma she'en ken kishenish berakeli, which is in the case when the vessel breaks. Nasachedes b'fnayatzmai. It becomes a shard onto its own. And a shard. Now, what happens if? I'll give you an example. What happens if the if the sushi tray that's let's say made out of clay falls down, and it breaks into a hundred pieces? Someone takes one of those pieces, and let's say, even though it broke to 100 pieces, it's a nice size shard. It's, for example, a piece of a shard that you can cover something with it. That's, I think, the amount for, you know, you can use it as a cover for a bottle, even if it's pretty small. And you pick it up and you carry it. The very same thing, that it, which when it was part of the, of the tray, which had the sushi in it, you weren't liable. Now when you're picking up this little shard and you're carrying it, you are going to be liable, even though you're taking so much less. Because now you're taking something. Because it now has an existence of its own. It's no more a tray for sushi because it can't be used for that anymore. Now, it's a buy, it can, whatever, whatever you're going to use a shard for. The same is also above. When the light is contained in the vessel, then the keli, the vessel, is in a state of surrender and 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 therefore assimilation into its source. Mamash Lagaba or it's nullified and surrendered to the light. That's what happens in the in the in the ten attributes of, of rectification. The vessels themselves have no existence. They're they're communicators of light and they don't draw any attention to themselves. And all you have is a flow of divine energy to the world and they are part of it. And therefore they're also divine. He is one with those garments. He's one with those vessels. Because the kelim have, because they are completely subservient and, and, and serving the energy, they too are divine. Mamish, literally. Because they don't have anything of them of their own to stand out, to be something other. They are bitl legamri, they are totally nullified, mamish legaba oirin seifam alubishbem, to the infinite one that is enclosed in them. Mashenkim bitoyu, which is in the case in the world of toyu, shenish berua kalim, because in the world of toyu the vessels broke. Vinestal komehena oirois, and the lights retracted and went away. Hukamoy al derech mashal, so it's like the example that what? Lamata. Hakeli kishenishbar. When the vessel breaks, the shards, each piece becomes something onto its own. It's no more a wine bottle. It's no more a wine goblet. It's not, it's not surrendered to the wine. Now it's something on its own. Now it calls its own existence. So the same is also on a cosmic level through the shattering of the vessel, which are these letters. That they became separated. They all became something now, when the ten attributes of Tikkun, which are all, yes, communicators of the divine plan and divine energy, mix with this, integrate with these shards, so the energy is, is conveying godly content and godly idea and the ability to create, but the shards are, are creating static and, and blockage and self self-projection uh, into it. So the, the blend that comes out of it 
is a creature that has potential because of the power of tikkun and has the potential to recognize God and surrender and to become one to it, but it also has within it a dark side which claims separateness and beingness. And so in us, for instance, in our, in our psychological makeup of a human being, we have a soul, which our soul is primarily impacted by the flow and the energy flow of tikkun, of rectification. So the soul has no personal agenda. The soul is in a state, that's why it's called godly, it's divine, it's a continuation of God. It has no, nothing for itself, it is utterly surrendered to God. And it is always suggesting to us, inspiring us and driving us towards our purpose, mission, and reason for existence. But all it wants us to be is a continue, a flow of the infinite, part of that grand infinite flow of, 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 that God flows into the cosmos. Uh, for this vast, eternal, godly, magnificent revelation. And, and, and the soul is constantly nudging us back into that truth. But we also have an a dark consciousness, which is our animal soul, which is primarily a being coming from the shards of Tohu. And therefore it's very much into itself, into its own existence. It feels itself as something legitimate, as something important, something that has a validity, a being. And therefore I have my own plan. Therefore, my, my energy, my life, my everything is about me, not about something bigger. So, that's in the human being. But that's in everything. Now, obviously, the human being is the one who is the most influenced by tikkun. Because his soul is primarily plugged into the world of tikkun. That's why the human being is the most preconditioned to recognize the plan and the purpose and live for the purpose and for the plan. The lower things in creation, the, the, the animal, the vegetation, they don't have within, 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 it them, within themselves their ability to, to station themselves or make themselves um, feel and recognize just that flow of, of, even though it looks like it, because what's a plant? It's just doing what God wants. But still, the very substance of the material of it is, is, is something of self. And, and because if it would be communicating God, then, then all, then automatically when we saw nature, it would tell us only about a creator. And even though for many of us, when we go out into nature, we feel that way, the source of dis distraction, distortion, comes from city life and from all, everything else that everybody tries to bombard us with all day long from the news, from the billboards, from, from everything is screaming to us, you know. The opposite message of divine harmony and divine purpose. And therefore when we escape to the wilderness and the mountains and the and nature, it's, it's kind of a relief from all that bombardment and we can look at, the, at a purer world. But let's think, these cities and those who built the cities all started off in a natural place where there was no city. And yet they built cities with the intentions of not living godly lives. That means that there's something about nature itself that's also communicating a, a wrong communication. And the reason why we can go into nature and recognize God and serve Him and seek for Him is because we're knowing, because we're influenced already by Torah, we're influenced already by, and therefore when we're looking in nature, we're looking for the divine. But in and of itself doesn't necessarily convey that. So the lower parts of creation don't have within, within, within themselves that inner godly consciousness from the world of Tikkun. They need the human being to interact with them and reveal they have it in potential. 
but it needs to be revealed in them. And as a result of that, we take everything out of its beingness and make everything a continuous flow of the infinite. And then the world becomes godly, and that's Mashiach. Which isn't the case, contrary to Tohu, which results in a world of separation, which isn't the case in the ten, the ten, the ten vessels of the ten attributes of Tikkun. They are unified with the lights. So if there would only be a world coming from the world of Tikkun, if God would allow, would make the world just from the connected attributes, not by integrating the disconnected entities, but everything would be a continuous flow of the, just from the connected attributes, then the connection would be felt throughout the entire system, and the world would never come into existence of Isavas Hayesh, to end up in a being that is concerned about himself. Vidova Nifrad, and something apart and separated. Ki de Tikkun, because the vessels of Tikkun, Ham Betelem Lo'or, they're nullified to the light, and therefore they communicate the, 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 the energy and the idea of the energy further. So there wouldn't be anywhere anybody that's telling you something else. There wouldn't be any other message. The message would be only, there's none but God. Even though it has been explained. But hold it. We're saying that God created the world. Our world resulted from what? From the Tohu shards. That's why it's so, it's so disconnected. But didn't we say earlier that God created the world from the ten utterances? And the ten utterances, we said, are derived from the ten attributes, which the ten attributes are the attributes of Tikkun. So where do we find in creation, where, where is that yeast coming in that we mentioned earlier that gives the inflated experience to the creation from where? Ah, that's why he says, yes, the ten utterances originally come from the ten energies of Tikkun. But they become enclosed, they become enclosed in the ten spheros, also in ten powers. But ten powers of what was once part of the world of Toh that has fallen, and now it's called, it's associated, this fallen, broken world is associated with the name of God, because it too is really a divine energy, but it's called the name of 52, Shem Ban. Because the mamorois, the, the utterances we know, speech is connected to malchus, malchus pet. Oilam adiba, which is the world of speech, and malchus tatzilus, and malchus tatzilus, even though it's part of atzilus, in it, it connects to, and for whatever reason, it is influenced and very much by this, by the energies of Tohu. O malchus tatzilus, who shame ban is the name of Ban, that in it fell, in Malchus fell, from the name 63, which is the primordial world of Toh before it collapsed. So when the energies were up there, they were called Samach Gimel, 63. Again, these numbers are Kabbalistic, related to different manifestations, a different order of the divine letters of Yudke Vavke and the filling of these letters which result in different type of energy and the character of the energy flow of the divine being in a different level. So the manifestation of God before the collapse is called 63. And its impact after the collapse 
is 52, and it primarily falls into Malchus. Malchus is the world of speech. That's where there is some of the of this or a deposit, so to speak, of these shattered entities. And then when the ten utterances of Tikkun speak through the mouth of Malchus, it's already a combination, an enclosement of the energies of Tikkun mixed with the powers of of of, of Tohu. Vayadeya Oisi is the shame ban through the letters of the name 52. Shame Shoidesha Oisiois, which they are the root of letters, Shemeshvira Sakelem. They're related to the shattered, to the letters that are from the shattered world, from the shattered vessels. Somehow, through this mixture, it creates and brings into existence the world that is something the Dovar Nifrat and apart from godliness. And therefore, in truth, there is in Bria Yetzir and Asiya, which is these creation worlds, the three lower worlds, which is a state of creation, which is a state of separation, that's what I was saying earlier, the world really has within it a mixture of both. In other words, this that the three lower worlds are broken and, 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 and have, a, have a, a misguided or mis, 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 uh, a misunderstanding of, of what's going on and, and see themselves in a, in a, in a, in a, as something which, is a, which comes from, broken, from brokenness, um, it's not just broken. It has the potential to fix because there's a mix in the world of tikkun and tohu mixed together. And, but the human being, as we're soon going to see, is the primary agent of tikkun, especially Torah and mitzvahs, and practically the Jewish people. The Jewish people, the human race in general, the human beings, the Jewish people more specifically, and Jewish people that are engaged in learning Torah and doing mitzvahs are really primarily activating the forces of tikkun, expanding the forces of tikkun, revealing, unlocking the tikkun that's buried in the tohu. So, in truth, there is in of ma and ban. Now, mat's ma, ma is the state of tikkun. Ban is the state of tob. We said many times, ban is the is the numeric value of behema, which behema means animal, which represents animal consciousness, which an animal is lacking intelligence. So the, this state of believing that you exist other than God is considered a lacking of intelligence, a broken consciousness. And ma is a rectified kind. Ma spells adam, man. It's not spells, the same numeric value as adam, 45, tikkun. In the world is a mixture of, 50, of energies of 52 and 45. And that's the difference between the inner and the outer. Superficially, externally, everything is ban. Everything is something. Internally, go deep, discover the soul, get to the heart of it. You can uncover the panemius of it is the energy of ma. So when we dig deeper into things, when we never look at things for, for their superficial, our face value, we always look deeper into everything, then we can draw forth its tikkun element, its truth. And this is true where? In every creation, and particularly in holiness, 
the biyah. What does it mean? The creatures. Angels, angelic beings, celestial beings that exist in the higher worlds, they have a little bit of tohu in them. Because if they wouldn't have any tohu in them, they wouldn't be creations. They would just be a continuation of the divine energy. The fact that they feel themselves as creations, even if they're very holy, madly in love with God, stunningly awed by God, that the fact that they have some sense of self means that they're impacted by tohu. That's why there is a certain disconnect. But primarily they're motivated just to, 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 to engage in the purpose of creation and to serve their purpose. So that comes from the tikkun element that's in them. So the pnimi is the inner and the soul of it. That's why we find that even regarding the, the physical planets, and the, the that are and the luminaries in the sky and all these, which are part of the physical world, it's already the lower world of the world of Asiya, yet its soul recognizes the truth. That's why, according to Maimonides, the sun has a soul, the moon has a soul, and that soul recognizes creator. That's why they're always bowing. Like it says, the hosts of heaven, they bow down to you. That bittle. And that's, no one did that. The sun has that naturally. The angels have that naturally. We don't make that to the angels. They're born with that. That's because internally their soul is from the, the realm of Tikkun, and which is a state of Ma. It's a state of I am what? I am nothing but the energy creating me. So it's surrendered to its purpose. But then there is the external there is the external, the vessel, the body. And the vessel and the body always is more something. Even of angels above, they also have vessels and bodies, not physical bodies, but bodies that are compared to their energy, it's considered a body. And that pulls them in the other direction. Now, it's very, very, it's very minor, it's very minute. That's why we call them that they don't have Yet Sahara, they don't have inclination. They can't even entertain the thought of not listening to God. But the little bit of self-importance that they might have, if they might be slighted a little bit when someone doesn't respect them too much, if they're lacking, if they have a tiny bit of somethingness, that comes from their body, which is not part of the Bittle program. You know, It's not in that, in that uh, wavelength. It's, it's from the shards of toe of which create a sense of being other than the greater, integrated in the greater purpose, as something individual, as something. So this week I heard a story, it's an old story, but it just gives you the idea how the body has that power, even amongst the holiest of beings. The Balshemtov was once with his students, and uh, the Balshemtov was being very, 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 very tentative, and very, very um, very engaged with the simple Jews. It was Friday night. The Balshemtov had his greatest students with him. Each one was super mega tzaddikim, holy Jews. They were sitting around the Baal Shem Tish. 
And around them, standing around them, were very simple, 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 simple Jews who hardly knew how to read Hebrew. They were very, very simple people. Good people, but simple people. And the Baal Shem Tov was showing such love to them. This one he allowed him to make Kiddush of his cup. This one he gave him of his fish. This one he gave him of his soup. This one he gave him this. this. I mean, he was, and he was like enjoying their, their singing and he was like so much. And these great, great, they knew what does it means, the Balshemtov's cup. They knew. They wouldn't even dare touch his cup. They were terrified. They would feel that if they touched his cup, they would get electrocuted from its holiness. They were terrified. They would, you know, like they, Shemtov would give them his hand. They wouldn't touch the Balshemtov's hand. They know that this is their holiness way beyond them. The, the Shekhinah dwells on the Balshemtov. They, they couldn't hardly look at his face. And these guys are like don't appreciate it. They know there's a tzaddik, but. And the, and the Baal Shem Tov shows them such love, it bothered them. And the next day, Shabbos lunch, the day meal, the Baal Shem Tov would spend only with, he wouldn't allow the, the simple Jews in. He um, would allow only the tzaddikim, only his inner club. And when they sat with the Baal Shem Tov, the Baal Shem Tov was spending time with the tzaddikim. And with them, he was speaking deep Torah and revealing to them and lifting them up to the highest spiritual heights. It was like incredible. And the Mizritcha Magid, who was the chief disciple of the temple of the Balshemtov and later was going to take over the Balshemtov, was very bothered by it. Because he was thinking to himself, if only this can be, if, if, if last night can only be like today, like the Balshemtov can really reveal himself, who he is, what he is, and we can, such a waste of time that he spends with these when you call yuklach, these, 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 these people who don't know anything, ignorant people, sometimes boorish people, and he's spending such time with them instead of, you know, with his true disciples. He's, he's doing it now, but if, imagine if he would always spend it with us, not with the, why is he so busy with them? He had such a thought. When suddenly the Baal Shem Tev was maybe in a deep trance when he, was, when he was thinking this, and he opened his eyes and he told the students, they should sing, I think, some songs. And then he told them, no, he told them to hold, each one should put their hands around the other. And they all put their hands one on top of each other's shoulders and they made like the semicircle as they're sitting around the table. He told them to sing certain songs. They sang the certain songs and after they finished, he put his hands, he, he closed the circuit. He put his hands on the, on the students that were closest to him. When suddenly they heard they were in this one room where they were with the Balshemtov, and then this, the the simple Jews who weren't allowed in to that thing went to the shul. They were in the dining room. I didn't even think it was attached. It was in a different place, and they went to the shul. And when they were in the shul, they were saying to him, "Man, they were simple Jews. They came for Shabbos, and they can't go to the Balshemtov's dish. They were inspired, but they're very simple. They can't learn. They don't know mysticism. Any. They went to shul. They were saying to him, when the Balshemtov put his hands on." onto these two students, they suddenly started hearing the, the, these Jews, because the Balsham took them up into a higher realm, so they were able to experience things that weren't, they weren't there. And they were able to hear the Tehillim of these Jews that were saying Tehillim. And they heard the way this one, these simple Jews, they didn't hardly read, but whatever they were reading, and they, they were mixing in Yiddish words. They were saying, oh, you know, oh, Holy Father, and this one is saying, Oy, the bottom of God, you know, to, to be compassionate God. And this one is saying, and they were saying various different verses. And the sweetness and the sincerity and the power. 
And the Baal Shem Tov was basically allowing his students to hear it and to see it the way he, the Baal Shem Tov sees it. The Baal Shem Tov was able to penetrate out of the, all the layers and see the pure heart of these simple Jews because they were so simple, because they didn't know anything. When they spoke to God, it was with just such sincerity and such truth. And suddenly, all the students of the Baal Shem Tov felt, felt so ashamed of themselves that with all their scholarly and all, all their learning and all their studies and all their knowledge, they, they, they don't have that purity that these Jews have and the satisfaction that it's causing above is so much greater from these simple people than them with all their mysticism and all their meditations and things like that. They simply felt ashamed of themselves. So they basically got their answer. That why the Baal Shem Tov loves the simple Jews? Because Dafka, the simple people, have a certain sincerity and a certain truth to them that is lacking in the... But then, the Mizritcher Magad, after he realizes, he felt terrible. He felt really, really, really bad that he questioned his teacher. It's a very big sin to question a teacher, to think. When you see your teacher do something, and you know he's a tzaddik, you know he's a righteous person, and you second guess that maybe he's doing something wrong, that's wrong. And the Mizritcher Magad, when he realized that, how could he, if the Baal Shem Tov does something, it's right. And if he doesn't understand, it's his problem, not his Rebbe's problem. And he was thinking, it's like, well, how come the Baal Shem Tov does that? It's like, like a flaw in the Baal Shem Tov. And it bothered him so much, he couldn't have any rest. I don't, know, I don't know how long it was, but a while later he had a dream. And in the dream, he saw Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu, imagine the Mazur Chumagat sees Moshe Rabbeinu. Learning Torah with a classroom, with a bunch of little kids. And Moshe is teaching Torah to the children. And as Moshe is teaching the Torah to the children, they're learning the Pasuk and Parshas Lech Lecha, where it says that God, that God tells Abraham, he tells Avram Avinu that you're going to have a child. And Avram is already 99 years old. God tells him he's going to have a child. So Avram laughed. He laughed. So Rashi says that it was a laughter of joy, not that he was like thinking it's humorous, not believing. That's Rashi's period. But others... It's possible that, you know, their laugh means, like, like when Sarah laughed, God had complaints, right? You're not trusting me, you don't believe in me, you're, you think I'm kidding, because it's so... One of the children says to Moshe Rabbeinu, and raises his hand, says, Rebbe, he says, how can it be that Avram Avinu, such a tzaddik, such a great man, how could it be that he laughed when God himself promises you something, that you have a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a question, a little bit of a doubt. So Moshe Rabbeinu answered. This is the Magad. He's hearing Moshe's answer to this little boy in his dream. Moshe says that, that even Avram Avinu, even Avram, the body of Avram Avinu is still flesh. In other words, even though, even though, even though it's a guf kadesh, even though it's a holy body, but it's still flesh, it's still a guf. And because it's a guf, there's a certain... It too has a, you know, it's body. And body is body. Meaning to say, flesh is flesh. And flesh has a certain coarseness. So even someone at Sadiq like Avram, because of the body, the body can, can, can give a laugh. Now, it's not the soul, not as deeper consciousness, but there's a certain external of external that could be a little lacking in the complete and absolute attachment that one is. So the Magad understood that this was an answer to him, like to comfort him. That true, that how did he doubt his Rebbe? That he realized that that came because of the coarseness that's of his body, not of his neshama, of his own soul. Do you see that over here he's saying 
that even in the celestial beings that are so holy, but since their bodies are, the body comes from Ban, and Ban, as we said before, comes from the shattered world, and in the shattered world, uh, there's a certain disconnect and a certain sense of somethingness. So that Tzemach Tzedek adds, and he says it's, it's possible that's similar to this, it says in Ramaz, Pashas Emer, Gabakola Nikri Bishmi, that every person every person has two names. So what does he mean over here? The two names are related to the two, the external and the internal. The internal is your inner name, when you come from Ma, and the external is your outer name, which comes from Ba. The human being particularly is a combination of To and Tikkun, of these two forces. So that's every single creature is influenced by both to and tikkun. The soul of something is tikkun, and the body of something is tohu. That's when we look at each individual. But also, in general, we can divide creation. The more inner creations, in general, the inner, deeper creations, like souls and angels, which are the deeper part of reality, they are in a state of bitl. And the external existence, which is more the crust of the world, and in our case, the physicality of creation, that's in a more in a state of disconnect. The inner element of Briyatzir, which are the souls and the angels, they have bitl. They're in a constant state of surrender to its source. Because they're primarily influenced by the forces of Tikkun. Which, which even though over there as well there is a little bit of ban, a little bit of that charge, but the force of ma, of tikkun, overpowered the ban and fixed it already. And therefore being that they are the product already of a fixed, an energy that has already been repaired, therefore they are resulting in, in holy beings that are attached to God all the time. But the external element of the world are the outer chambers of Noga, of the Klippa of Noga, which is the more outer elements of creation. And there you have coarser creatures. Especially, it's not only in the physical, it's even in the spiritual. You have coarser entities. And eventually, of course, when you get to the physical creation itself, it's full of somethingness. Shenimshach, which is drawn, Mireish Peches Nitzutzen, which come from the 288 sparks, Veshvidah Sakelem and the shattered vessels, Shadayin Loin Nesakna, which all this was not yet been fixed. And this is where our struggle is to fix it. Look at these two types of letters of Ma and Ban, Aposik Vitachas Raglov, Kamas Olivnes Esapir, Ubebir Aposik Mimona Afar Yaakov. Look at those two places in which we discussed this idea. So that's Sif Aleph. That's the first chapter. Now the human being, the human being integrates and is made up, is crafted from both these powers of Tohu and Tikkun. His godly soul comes from the name of 45 of Tikkun. That's why the person is essentially in a state of surrender to Hashem. And the animal souls, I mentioned earlier, the dark side of the human, the animal soul. And the body, 
nimshuchu is comes from shviras hakelim from the shattered vessels of tov of the world of tov. The other rabbin, on the contrary, haguf banefsha bahamis, the human body is in some ways even lower than the plant and and the animal and the plant. In the, in, in the fact, in other words, more disconnected. Where do we find that? Even lower than there's a certain state of disconnect and separation in the human body. In other words, from the human body and his animal soul, he's the lowest creature, even lower than everything else. Even more disconnected, more distant, more into himself, more selfish. Because he says, to explain this idea why the human body is even lower than everything. It's very very clear. There's various different levels in surrender. That means an attachment to God. How deep, how deeply conscious one is of Enoid Movade, there's nothing but God. And how selfless as a result of that someone is. And just like there's gradations of how much bitl there is, there's also gradations of how much pirud and separation. Va pirud and also of, of, of separation. Because the hosts of heavens bow down to God. They have bitl. Right? In heaven, and the heavenly beings, even the physical, the, the, everything as we spoke, convey bitl in their, in their bowing down to Hashem. Now, even animals and wild beasts, which don't have any godly consciousness. They're busy doing this, satisfying themselves all day long. But they never step out of line. They do what God created them to do. So they're not sinning. An animal doesn't sin. An animal does what God generally operates. Most sometimes an animal misbehaves a little bit. It says humans can corrupt the animals. When humans misbehave, it causes a certain state of rebelliousness in the world. It seeps into the animals. That's why by the marble, it says the human behavior corrupted even the animals. But generally, the animals follow the pattern that God created them. They can't go against God's wishes. The human being is the only one who can actually completely disregard Hashem and violate the and the animals. They're not completely separated. They don't transgress sins. Which isn't the case of the human being. If he allows himself to follow his body's in instincts and his animal soul, um, and he doesn't control it with his godly consciousness, can even be more separated. He says he, he's able to do a sin. doesn't say he sins. The very fact that you can consider it, that it's a, that it's a question, that it's a back and forth, and you have to overcome it, that already shows on a level. An animal never debates even considers going against what God has created it to do. It doesn't have it. It can't step into that zone. The human being can step into the zone where he can he or she can question to listen and not to listen. That's how disconnected. And that's what we mean that the human being is created last to creation. He's the last of all levels, meaning the most disconnected, experiencing his or herself as something and an, an, an entity onto their own. And like it says in Tanya, in the Maimar over here, he's quoting his own book, the Tanya, in the end of chapter 24, 
that if someone transgresses even a minor sin, he's at the utmost of separating the, uh, from God's unity because he's basically declaring himself as a God because he says uh, uh, he's not submitting to the basic truth that God is the boss. God is God, meaning God is the emanator and creator and continuously creating everything. And therefore, how in the world, how do I dare defy my very, my very existence, my very force of beingness. It's, it's just impossible. If, if, God forbid, a person defies that knowingly and, and violates that and disregards it, he's basically denying the unity of God. And he's saying that there is existence other than God, which an animal doesn't do. Animal is not conscious. Animal is just a being an animal, but it's not claiming or declaring that there is other existence other than God. He's more separated, even for more than the other side, meaning even more separated than all the spiritual clippers, because the spiritual clippers also never step out of line. They were created to entice humans to sin, and they do what they're created for. They don't step out of their boundaries. Ayn Shambarichus, as explained over there in Tanya at Great Land. So the most disconnected entity could be the human. That's as long as we're looking at the human's dark side, lower side, the tohu side, but when we examine the human being from the godly side, from his, from his neshama, from his soul, boy, oh boy, he's a very, very high, he's above everything. He is nullified and surrendered completely, even higher than angels. Humans can attain a level of, of bitol tashem, greater tzaddikim are higher than angels. He's before all, he's first to all of creation. Which we discussed a little bit last week also in the previous class. So this is when we are analyzing the human in general, we will place the animal soul and the body in the category of tohu and therefore the last of creation and we are going to place the soul above the creation. And that's the amazing thing, the highest and the lowest come together in the human creation. Now he's going to say even in the godly soul itself, there is an element where a person precedes creation and is after creation. Even on the godly soul, we can also say that it's higher than everything and lower. But hold it, the godly soul is higher than it's, it's bottle. That comes from the world of Tikkun. It says over here as well, you've created me before and after. Or after and before. And that's because we're all time saying that the world of Tohu is the lowest. I'm sorry, Tohu creates and brings about a possibility for, of, of, for low. Or, for being lower, meaning more removed from God, more disconnected, more separated, and therefore, in truth, more nothing. Because the more disconnected you are from God, whose true reality, the more nothing you are. So to be lower in creation, more disconnected, means to be a bigger nothing. But the interesting thing, the bigger nothing one is, the bigger something they feel themselves. <laughs> the more important they are. It's a crazy thing. That's the strange thing. The more nothing one is, the more something they feel. Um, so, but tohu, as we're saying, is, is, is low. But that tohu is only low if you're examining it as it's manifesting now. But when you look at its source, these energies that are distorted, but when you 
Look at where they come from. They come from the primordial state of existence we spoke earlier. That's before God emanates the world of Tikkun. And the holiness of Tikkun is only a secondary level, a secondary channel after the first channel, which is the channel of Tov. And when we say first, we mean not only first in time, but first in, probably doesn't mean in time because there's no time then, but first in quality. It's so much deeper and higher than the tikkun. Tikkun comes through God's much greater restraint of himself and only a little bit of light comes out. So when we analyze things in the ultimate, tikkun is much lower and inferior to tohu. It's only that after tohu falls, it falls really low. So when we say our godly soul is last to creation, we can, I'm sorry, when we say the human being is last to creation, in addition to seeing the human body being, because it can sin being the last in creation, the human soul, even the higher side, is also can be considered last because when we're looking at the source of everything else, which is in the world of Tohu, and the source of the human, which is in the world of Tikkun, Tikkun is much lower and last after the emanation of Tohu. So in that sense, the human being comes up last, even from his godly side. Because Tikkun comes after the world of Tohu. Shakadam loy that comes before it, gambemaila, not only in time, so to speak, and evolve in, as it evolves, but also in quality, umadrega, and level. It fell in the shattered of the vessels. Kisag, because the power of 63, which we said before, was the name of God, which is associated with that first revelation. Hulamaila mama is much higher than the secondary order, which is the name 45. 63 is higher than 45. I don't mean just because it's a higher number. That's not what's considered over here. It's just the energy of 63 is far more potent than the energy of 45, which, which is the energy, which is the soul of the world of Tikkun. El it's only that it fell. B'Shem Ban, when it falls down in the name of 52, Yash, it falls into a state of behema, like we spoke earlier, in a state of somethingness. Tikkun hu chibur ma'uban. What's Tikkun? Tikkun is the powers of Ma coming down to rectify uh, the world of Ban. That also Ban, which is, again, the name 52, which is what creates all the separation, should also be in a state of, uh, in other words, let's translate that physically, our neshama, which comes from Ma, surrender to God, which is called Adam. Adam is the numeric value of Ma tries to influence our animal soul and our body to also live a life of focus and purposeful and godly and godly fulfillment and godly uh, attuned to God's plan. So that means that the ma brings the bittel into the ban, and it's the purpose of creation. And through that, it takes darkness and transforms it to light. And he is the one that the power of the neshama, of the ma, is the power to go down into the brokenness of the broken world, the broken consciousness, and to rectify it, to elevate it. And we do this, six days of creation in which we're involved in selecting. We work the world. We're taking parts of the world, integrating it into our life, and then using it to serving God. And that's how we're elevating creation. And comes out that the world of Tikkun that is engaged in fixing, when it's fixing, it's actually taking the, 
the integrating elements of tohu and bringing it into tikkun. But by when it brings it into tikkun, these elements of tohu go all the way, all the way up to their source. It says the spirit, this idea that the sparks of tohu that that are considered dead, fallen. Everything that falls is considered dead. It's hinted to, and right in the beginning of the Torah, it says that the Spirit of God is hovering over the water. Mirachefes, the Arizal says, comes from your bris. Mirachefes, which means hovering, also comes from, you can split it in two, Reish Peches, 288 sparks, mace that died. V'ubchenas meisushvir, it's in a state of death. Umezeh nasa hatikun bibiyah, and... This is what creates the tikkun in biyak. The, the world of, is, as we mentioned earlier, when God said, let there be light, it was some kind of a combination of energies of tikkun combining with the energies of toh. And therefore, God naturally kissed mitzada tikkun, nikrubchinis ochr, legaba ulamatoyu. Which therefore, what does this tell us? That the godly soul which comes from Tikkun is called last compared when you line them up with the world of Tohu because the 288 sparks come from a much higher place. And even on the intellectual soul that's in the human being, you can also say before and after you were created. Compared to the diamonds of Meachai. So again, first he said that the person is first and last. His godly soul is first, because the godly soul is higher in its consciousness with, with Hashem. And the body, which is from the brokenness of Tohu, is lower. Now he extends that even the godly soul, he said, is also considered last when you consider the source of where Tohu comes, where the sparks, these fallen things come from. In other words, when you consider their source, the godly soul is, is um, inferior to it. Now he adds that the concept of Ochar V'Kedem to the human being first and last also applies to not the animal. See, there's another soul, which is discussed in Chassidus, called the intellectual soul. Not the godliness inside of us that's totally surrendered to God. Also, not the animal side that's selfish and just considers all day long, um, 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 inst- you know, gratification of the of the material, the 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 intelligence of the human. Over here as well, there is before and after. Why? is showing that in all dimensions of the human, there is the idea of before and after. When you look at the order of the way God spoke the world into creation, the vegetation, the animal, they all precede the human. The human comes after them. As we spoke in the beginning of the class, the last one. The way the tikkun works is the human that's the last, that is the speaker, is above them all. No, he's explaining. Al is explaining how come God created the human last.
if creation would only be following the order, if the energy in creation would be following the order of tikkun. So tikkun, the human is the human is the highest. So if the human is the highest, the human should have been created first. Because there's domain medaver. But he's saying this 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 hierarchy where the human is above the animal is in the world of tikkun. But in the world of tohu, that means in its original energy, in that first system, in that original energy, as we discussed last week also in the Paraduma, things are flipped over. Over there, the human is actually the weakest. And the animal is more powerful, meaning rooted deeper. And the plant is even higher. And the inanimate is even higher. And since when Hashem creates the world with the ten utterances, it's a blend of tohu and tikkun, and in a sense, the tohu overpowers the fact that the human comes out to be the last one in creation. And that is, and that is a, a, a indication, or that is due to the fact that in Tohu, the human is the last. The intelligent being is the last. The inanimate is higher than Tzameach. That's why it says by Karbonois, Bris Melech Oilam. By sacrifice, it says God made a covenant, like the covenant of salt, implying that the salt that's put on the sacrifice, that's like gives it its kick. That's like, until you don't put the salt, you know, it's, it's forbidden. You're not allowed to put anything without salt. Now, that's because God likes uh, his egg salty. <laughs> what does that mean? It's because in source, salt, which is the mineral, is the inanimate, is, is bris, is in a state of connection to Hashem, deeper than... The animal, and the they would pour wine or bring flour along with it, which is from the plant. They all doesn't resonate; it doesn't reach as high as the salt. Even though it's the daimim, because in its root it's very high. And and salt is the gavura element of of, of Chachma Father. And therefore, and therefore, even the intellect. Which is the idea of a medaber, even though it's higher than the doimim tzemeachai, the inanimate, the, the vegetable, and the animal. And it comes from the face of man, which the other ones come from the face of animal that's in the Markovic, which goes to Pris to make Bnei Adam. The Nikrakedem, it's called first. When it's emanating through the ten spheres of tikkun, yes, the human being is the highest and the first and everything. But as it is coming through the ten attributes of Tohu, it's the opposite. But in its root of Tohu, that's why the human is called last. Once we have this set up, which I think this last part I didn't explain too well because I don't understand it too well, because as I mentioned to you earlier, I didn't do the full preparation here. So I'm going to leave Perek Gimel and Perek Dal, the Mietz Hashem for tomorrow. At some time, I can't promise what time. And um, so that we, but now we have the introduction and the ideas over here of first and last you created me. Now we'll understand the interplay with the human being, with all the stuff in the world and the significance of vows. Where does that come in of a person withholding from these things and why it's good, not good, and how, how does all work? We're going to complete that tomorrow. Thank you.